This is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov. Welcome to End Time Apocalypse. I just want to welcome each and every one of you, wherever you may be watching or listening from. I want to welcome the audience here at 3ABN as together we will journey through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is becoming more and more one of my favorite books in all the Bible. We're going to go on this six part journey together. Today's topic is expect the unexpected as we tap into the very heart of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, as we'll discover, is a book all about Jesus Christ, his plans for us, as well as Jesus Christ unveiling the plans that the enemy has for us. Now, why have I entitled it End Time Apocalypse? Well, End Time is self-explanatory. The word apocalypse is is the word that means unveiling or revealing. And so we're going to reveal the wonderful truth from God's Word together in this wonderful book. But before we open up God's Word, what do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit that inspired The Bible that inspired the book of Revelation will inspire and impress us as we journey together. So let's pause and pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word. And together, as we begin this exciting journey in the book of Revelation, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds, that we may be willing and able to receive what the Holy Spirit has to say to to us, those of us who are living at the end time of earth's history. And for that, We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's go to the book of Revelation and notice how the book of Revelation begins. It begins with these words in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, writes John, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So right from the very outset, we discover that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And it was given by God through Jesus Christ to his servant John in signs or in symbols. There are a number of symbols in the book of Revelation. And here are just several The woman that represents the church, the beast represents a kingdom, the dragon represents Satan and the lamb represents Jesus Christ. So it's a book that can only be understood as we understand the symbols. Now, all the symbols are unpacked in other scriptures in the Bible, in particular, the Old Testament. Notice the book of Revelation continues on in verse two who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Revelation 1 verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So there is a wonderful blessing given to those who will study and learn and read the book of Revelation and especially keep those things that are written in it. Now, the book of Revelation is the great controversy, the great controversy. It's, it's, it's the great controversy in Revelation and it's over worship. That is what the book of Revelation is all about. In fact, as we take a look at the structure of the book of Revelation, we discover something very, very fascinating. Notice the structure of the book of Revelation. We have the first part of the book of Revelation, the prologue that matches with the epilogue right at the end. The second part of the book of Revelation matches with the second last part and so on and so forth until you get to the very climax of the book of Revelation. The very heart of the book of Revelation is found there in Revelation chapters 12 
to 14. This, in fact, is the bullseye. Scholars refer to, to this aspect of the book of Revelation as a chiasm. Some of you may be familiar with archery. And in archery, where is the greatest score? It's right there in the center, and that's called the bullseye. So the most important part of the book of Revelation is right there in the very heart, right there in the very center. And so together, during this six-part series, we want to take a look at the very heart of the book of Revelation. We won't examine everything there in those three chapters, chapters 12 to 14, but we will take a look at some of the key points that especially relate to us as we are living at the end of time in Earth's history. Now, we want to take a look at the three angels' messages in the book of Revelation. Revelation has a final appeal that God gives to the entire world. And that appeal is spoken of as the three angels' messages that we find in Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 to 12. And these three messages prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Because what follows these three messages is the second coming. And that's how Revelation chapter 14 ends and the very heart of the book of Revelation. So let's take a look at these three angels messages. And this is just simply a summary. The first angels message is all about worshipping the creator, following God's truth. This is God's final call and God invites the entire world to worship him as the creator and to follow his truth. The second angel's message exposes Satan's deceptions. And in the third angel's message, God says, choose who you will worship, the creator, Jesus Christ, or the created one, Satan, either the Ten Commandments of God or the traditions of man. This is a very simple summary of the three angels' messages. I have summarized the three angels' messages in six words. Notice, we have these, we have the three angels' messages in six words. The first angel's message is God's truth. The second angel's message, God exposes Satan's lies. And in the third angel's message, God says it's your choice. So can you see how this message is extremely important? There is no other message on the planet that is more important. In fact, the everlasting gospel is that gospel that Jesus said would be preached in all the world. And that's how Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 begins. It says this is the everlasting gospel that needs to go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. And then that everlasting gospel is unpacked in these three angels messages. So together we want to take a look at these three angels messages. And today we want to begin by taking a look at the third angels message, this third angels message that prepares the world to make a choice as to who it will serve, whether it will worship Jesus Christ or whether it will worship the enemy. The entire Bible is about worship. The worship war doesn't only take place at the end of time. The worship war began when Lucifer rebelled in heaven. And that same worship war will continue all the way down through time until at the very end of time, that worship war will climax. So we want to take a look at the climax of the worship war in the third angel's message. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And now notice verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Did you notice that in this third angel's message, there is a very strong warning? In fact, many consider this to be the strongest warning in all the book of Revelation. There is a, a warning against worshipping the beast and his image and receiving his mark. There will be one group on the planet. Sadly, that will be the majority who will worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. There will be another group, according to verse 12, as we have just read, that will worship the creator God. They will keep the commandments of God and they will have the faith of Jesus. Now, what we need to do is we need to ask a very, very important question because this is a life and death, an eternal life, an eternal death question that needs to be answered. Our eternal destiny is at stake depending on the decision, depending on the choice that you and I will make. So we need to ask this all important question, and that is, why is it so important that we know the truth? Notice what we read. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The Bible tells us that at the end of time, the entire world will wonder and follow after this beast power. Now, we have discovered briefly, and we'll discover some more, that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? A kingdom, a nation. So the Bible tells us that, that, this, that this power, this kingdom will seek to receive worship, worship that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. But who will the world be worshipping ultimately when it worships this power or follows and marvels after this power? Notice what we continue to read in Revelation 13 and verse 4. So they worshipped who? The dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So those at the end of time who worship the beast, who give their allegiance to the beast, follow the beast, marvel after the beast. They are ultimately not worshiping the beast. They are worshiping the dragon. And according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the dragon is a symbol for Satan and the devil. We ought not to be surprised for the devil has always worked through powers, through institutions, has always worked through a front man. Right at the very beginning of time, Satan through the serpent deceived Eve. Isn't that right? At the end of time, Satan will use this power that in Revelation 13 is described as this beast power that we will discover who this beast power is. And through this power, Satan will ultimately seek to receive worship that belongs to God alone. That is extremely important. You and I need to know who this power is. We need to know in order that we may remain true to Jesus Christ and worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, where do we find a description of this beast power? 
Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, where this beast power is described by John. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. So here we have this very strange looking beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Here is an artist's impression of what this beast may have looked like that John saw in vision with with seven, seven heads, Ten horns, a leopard um, for a, for a body, a head head of a lion, and 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 feet of a bear. This beast, who is this beast? You and I need to know who this beast is. We discover that this beast is a beast that will seek to receive worship, that will seek to receive allegiance from the entire world, and the dragon is the one who gives this beast his power throne and great authority. And who's the dragon did we discover? Ultimately Satan, a symbol for Rome, pagan Rome, but ultimately a symbol for Satan. So who is this beast power? We discover that this beast power is none other than the Antichrist. Now the Antichrist is a term that that simply describes the adversary of Christ. In the place of Christ is what that word means. Antichrist, that word antichrist, it comes from the book of First and Second John, where that term on, on five occasions refers to the antichrist. Now, the ultimate antichrist who seeks to be in the place of Christ, who is in opposition to Christ, is who? It's the devil and Satan, isn't that right? That's the ultimate antichrist. But as we have already discovered, Satan doesn't come out in the open Instead, he works behind the scenes through systems and through powers in order to achieve his objectives. Isn't that right? That's just how Satan has always worked, through deception. And so you and I need to understand who this Antichrist is at the end of time that Satan will seek to use in order to receive worship. The Antichrist or this beast power has been described um, in a number of other ways in Scripture. Not only the Antichrist, but it's described as the beast, as here in Revelation 13, as Babylon in Revelation chapter 17, which we'll get to in another presentation, as the harlot, uh, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as well as the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the little horn power in Daniel chapter 7. Now, what we'll discover is that Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 look at the same material, but they add different things. Daniel picks up uh, important facts that Revelation omits and so on and so forth. So when we combine Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, we discover who this power is and it becomes so, so clear and so, so obvious. So let's go to the book of Daniel where this Antichrist power, this beast power of Revelation 13 is in Daniel 7 described as this little horn power. Now, the book of Daniel is is the companion book to the book of Revelation. 
The book of Daniel helps us understand the book of Revelation in a very beautiful and in a very powerful way. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, we have this image that King Nebuchadnezzar saw. And this image was a description that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar of the kingdoms that would follow his kingdom all the way through to the very end of time. The head of gold in Daniel chapter 2 represents the kingdom of Babylon, the the Arms and chest of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire. The, the belly and thighs of bronze represent Greece. The legs of iron represent Rome. And the feet made up of iron and clay represent the division of the Roman Empire as it was divided and as it is today in Western Europe. Ten toes representing the, the ultimate division of the Roman Empire where ten tribes ultimately made up that Roman Empire, 10 nations that we have there in Europe. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we have four beasts that Daniel sees in vision. And these four beasts are simply the four kingdoms that Daniel has described to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. It's God here repeating this prophecy, but enlarging on it. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we won't have time to read verses 1 to 7 in the interest of time, but in, God begins by, by, by describing a lion that represents Babylon. Then God describes the bear that represents Medo-Persia. Then God describes this four-headed leopard that represents Greece. And then this dragon that represents Rome that has 10 horns. And that describes the, the kingdoms that arose out of the pagan Roman Empire as it broke apart. But then in verse 8, we have a new We have a new bit of information. We have some more information that we don't have in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little horn coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now this, as we'll discover, is this antichrist power that the Bible speaks of at the end of time. This is this kingdom, this beast power of Revelation chapter 13. These two powers are one and the same. And together as we put the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together, we will discover who this power is that the Bible is talking about. Who is this kingdom? As I pointed out, the little horn of Daniel 7, 8 is the same power of Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, that is described as the beast. Notice what we read here. We're going to put some pieces together. Let's take a look at 10 identifying marks of the Antichrist kingdom. Firstly, we discover that it comes up amongst the 10 kingdoms. That is, it arises in Western Europe. Notice what we read. I was considering the horns, writes Daniel, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. So this power comes up amongst the 10 kingdoms of Europe. It comes up there in Western Europe. So that's the first identification mark that we have there in verse 8 in Daniel chapter 7. Let's continue on. Notice the second identification mark. It comes up after the 10 kingdoms are already established. Notice what we read. Daniel writes, 
I was considering the horns. I was considering the horns. He's considering these 10 horns there in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. And as he's considering these 10 horns, he sees this little horn coming up amongst them. So it must arise there in Western Europe amongst the nations of Western Europe. Let's go to our third point together. It is a small Western European kingdom, a small Western Europe kingdom. Notice what this text says. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one. Now, when God gives us specific details such as this, it's for a reason. There is this little horn power that arises, this little kingdom that will arise there in Western Europe. After the period of 476 AD, when those 10 nations of Europe were well and truly formed, this little kingdom will arise. Let's keep going. Notice our fourth identification mark. It uproots three kingdoms by the roots. Notice what we read. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now, this is so important that Daniel describes this point two other times in Daniel chapter 7. Three, on three occasions, we have this all-important fact that this power will uproot three of the nations of Europe by the roots. In other words, they will be completely gone. That's our fourth point. Let's take a look at our next point together. Point number five. It had eyes like the eyes of a man. Notice what the text says. It says, it had, it, it, there were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Eyes like the eyes of a man. It's interesting when we take a look at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Notice how Jesus Christ is here described by Daniel. He writes, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Here Daniel is describing Jesus Christ and he describes him as one like the Son of Man. Here we have this power described with eyes of an eyes of a man. This is a counterfeit power to Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because the rest of the text tells us that this power is an intelligent power that seeks to take away from the prerogatives that belong to God alone. Eyes are a symbol of intelligence in the Bible. It's also a symbol of pride. Pride you have in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 there. The Bible says the Lord hates haughty eyes. So this power is, is, is prideful. This power is arrogant. And this power seeks to take away the prerogatives that belong to the Son of Man. So Daniel here describes this power, eyes like the eyes of a man, to help us understand this, this interaction that is taking place. Let's take a look at our next identification mark that identifies this Antichrist kingdom. Point number six, it speaks pompous or blasphemous words against God. And notice what we read in Daniel 7 verse 8, right at the end of verse 8, we read, and it had a mouth speaking pompous words, a mouth speaking words of blasphemy. Two other times those words are mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, that this power speaks pompous words. In Revelation chapter 13, 
we also have this description. Revelation 13 verse 1, it says, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and on his heads a what? A blasphemous name. Now, on three other occasions in in Revelation chapter 13, this power is described as a blasphemous power. So in Daniel, three times, this word is described um, as, as, as a power that speaks pompous words or words of blasphemy. And in Revelation, we have this power described on four occasions that it speaks blasphemy. So seven occasions in total in Daniel and Revelation, this power is described as being a blaspheming power. So this is extremely important because God has repeated this point, not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times in order to make the message absolutely crystal clear. So let's ask, according to the Bible, what is blasphemy? Well, firstly, blasphemy is seeking to make oneself equal to God. That is what blasphemy is. Notice what we read in John chapter 10 and verses 30 to 33. Jesus says, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for what? But for blasphemy and because you being a man, make yourself who? God. So according to scripture, an individual, an institution, any earthly power that claims to be God, that is blasphemy. Now, was Jesus God? Absolutely. The Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God. So could Jesus, could Jesus claim to be God? Absolutely, because He was God. But for an individual to claim the prerogatives that belong to God alone, to say, I am God, according to Scripture, that is blasphemy. So this power will claim to be God on earth. That's a huge clue, a huge clue as we seek to identify this end time antichrist power. Now, there's a second definition. Notice blasphemy. Sorry. Well, before we get to that, the Apostle Paul, he also um, reflects on this power. And notice how he describes it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, and he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus here when he speaks of that day, will not come unless the falling away comes first. That word there, falling away, is the word apostasia or apostasy. So this falling away from truth. And the man of sin is revealed. There is, a, there is another term that describes the Antichrist. The son of perdition. There is another term. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? He is God. So the Apostle Paul is very clear. This power would arise... And he describes this power as the man of sin, the son of perdition, that will seek to take on board the prerogatives of God, that will seek to sit in the temple of God amongst the people of God, claiming that he is God. And the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, refers to this power as the son of perdition. There are only two times in the New Testament where that phrase son of perdition appears once here by the Apostle Paul to describe this Antichrist power. And another time those words are used by Jesus 
to describe the work of one of his 12 disciples, Judas. Now, Judas was part of Jesus' 12. He was someone from the inside. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that this power, unlike what many out there will think, unlike what you may uh, read on the Internet, this power comes from within and not from without. Now, is that deceptive? Yes or no? Absolutely. That's why I've entitled this message, Expect the Unexpected. Most Christians today around the world are looking forward to are looking for the Antichrist to come from outside rather than be inside the Christian church, where the Apostle Paul says we need to look inside. Let's take a look at the second definition, according to the Bible, of what constitutes blasphemy. And that is claiming the power and authority to forgive sins. Notice this scripture. We read in Luke chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. When he saw their faith, he said to him, that is Christ, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks what? Blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. So blasphemy is when you being a human being, when you being a mere mortal, claim that you have the power to forgive sin. The Bible is very clear. God alone can forgive sin. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, he is our mediator between us and God. Jesus Christ did not commit blasphemy because he was God, as we have already established, and he is able to forgive sins. But if you claim that you're able to forgive my sins, you're able to forgive someone else's sins, that is blasphemy. God alone is able to forgive sins. So this power will not only claim to be God on earth, but this this power will claim the prerogative of seeking to forgive sins. And that, according to Scripture, is blasphemy. Now, we continue on to point number seven. Point number seven. It will be a greater or different kingdom from the other ten. Notice what we read in Daniel chapter seven and verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So this power will be greater. It will be more powerful than the other ten kingdoms. Not only will it be greater, but it will also be different. Notice what we read in verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. That is this little horn power. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Now, how is this power greater and different? Well, it's greater in that this power was more mighty than all the other kingdoms. This power was different in that it was a political as well as a religious kingdom. The other kingdoms were political. This kingdom was both political and religious. Let's continue. Point number eight. It intends or thinks to change God's times and law. Notice what we read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. This power will seek to take on board the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. 
the God who gave the Ten Commandments. This power will seek to change God's law. Now, can any man change God's law? No. God wrote his Ten Commandments in tablets of stone, tablets of stone from his very throne room. And he gave them to Moses. Those tablets of stone were written by God with his own finger, and they were to last until the end of time. They are to last forevermore. You see, God's law is the foundation of his government. God's law is a transcript of his character. And for a power to claim to change God's law, that is, that is something that is beyond belief. That is something beyond imagination. But that's what God says this power will claim to do, will claim or think to change God's law. We continue on. Point number nine. It shall persecute God's saints. Notice what we read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. This power will seek to persecute God's people in the name of God because this power claims to work on behalf of God. Isn't that right? So this power persecutes God's people in the name of God. Revelation chapter 13 also describes this all-important point. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7, we read, It was granted to him, that is to this beast power, this antichrist power, war with the saints and to overcome them. And now finally, we move to our last and tenth point. It has religious and political authority for 1260 years. Notice what we read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. The last part of Daniel 7 verse 25 reads, Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Now, what does all this mean? A time, times, and a half a time. That's not the kind of language that we use today to describe time. But this is how the Bible, how Bible prophecy describes time when it comes to prophetic time. Now, a time represents one year or 360 days. Times represents two years or 720 days. Half a time is half a year or 180 days. That gives us a total of 1260 days. In Daniel chapter 4, there we discover that King Nebuchadnezzar went out and enjoyed the green grass of the field, the Bible says, for seven times, for seven times, for seven years. So a year represents one time, according to Scripture. Now, we have this period of time, not only in Daniel, but also in Revelation. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, that describes the extent of the rule and reign of this Antichrist power. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 42 months. Now, in a biblical month, there are 30 days. And not all of our months are 30 days, but a biblical month is 30 days. So 42 times 30 gives you how many? 1260. 
1260. And what's fascinating about this period is that the books of Daniel and Revelation refer to this period in three different ways. We've looked at two. There is one other way in order to make it crystal clear what period of time we're looking at in order to identify who this power is. Notice what we have here on the screen. This religio-political power is described in Daniel 7, 25, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7, and in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14 as ruling for a time, times, and a half a time, or those three and a half years as we have already discovered. It's also described as ruling for 42 months, in Revelation 13, verse 5, which we've just read, as well as Revelation 11, verse 2. But it also is described in Revelation 11, 3 and Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, as ruling and reigning, reigning for 1260 days. So can you see how important this point is? God has identified the time of this prophecy in three different ways so that you and I would not miss it just in case we didn't understand the time, times and a half a time, or we didn't quite get the 42 months, God makes it simple and clear. And he says, this power will rule and reign for 1260 days. Now we need to ask, what is a day in Bible prophecy? What does a day represent in Bible prophecy? Now it's a symbol. And notice what we find in the book of Numbers, chapter 14 and verse 34. God says, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, he's speaking to the children of Israel, 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt for how long? One year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So in Bible prophecy, a day represents one year. How long does a day represent in Bible prophecy? One year. year. So those 1260 days... Those 42 months, that time, times and half a time, those three and a half years are literally 1260 years. This power will rule and reign for 1260 years. So with that in mind, let's notice these this incredible comparison between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 that helps us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these two powers are one and the same, that the little horn power is this sea beast of Revelation chapter 13. They both arise from the sea. The same beasts are used in both chapters. Seven heads and ten horns appear in both chapters blasphemes God. It's a religious power. That's in both chapters. We have persecuting the saints. That is its political authority in both chapters. And it maintains religio-political authority for 1260 years. And the issue is worship. So this makes it absolutely crystal clear that these two that these two chapters are speaking of this one entity, this one all-important entity. Now, I want to share with you something that is absolutely profound that helps us to understand that this power is being used and will be used at the end of time by Satan himself in order to take on board the prerogatives that belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. To take on board the prerogatives of worship that belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
we will now take a look at 10 incredible comparisons between Jesus Christ and his ministry and his authority and how Satan seeks to counterfeit the prerogatives, the ministry that belongs to Jesus Christ that he espoused in his time here on earth with the power and the work of the Antichrist at the end of time. It's almost as if Jesus Christ has a twin. When you take a look at the comparison between Jesus Christ and what the Antichrist seeks to do and how Satan seeks to mirror the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely incredible. Notice these 10 points. And just in case you're wondering, I saw a number of these in the text, but there are a number that I didn't see in the text that I was blessed to to gather and to gain from a number of scholars that are all seeing the same thing, that are seeing this incredible comparison. Notice these 10 points. I have them up on the screen. Antichrist, a counterfeit for Jesus Christ, as we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 earlier on. The beast of Revelation 13 acts under the full authority and power of the dragon, that is Satan. We read about that in Revelation 13 verse 4. Jesus stated that he acted in the full authority of the Father, Matthew 28 and verse 18. Notice point number two. The beast comes up from the water to begin his activity. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. Jesus comes up from the water to begin his ministry. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 23. Point number three. The beast resembles the dragon. Revelation 12 verse 3 and 13 verse 1. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the father. John 14 verse 9. Can you see these incredible comparisons? It's incredible. Let's continue reading. Point number four, the beast receives his power, throne and authority from the dragon. Revelation 13 verses two and verse four. Jesus receives his power, throne and authority from the father. Matthew 28 verse 18. Point number five, the beast rules for 42 months. Revelation 13 verse five. Jesus' ministry lasted for approximately 42 months. You can, you can discover that in Daniel chapter nine verses 24 to 27. Point number six, The beast was slain, Revelation 13, verse 3. Jesus was slain, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, and and obviously the gospel accounts. Point number seven, the beast came back to life, Revelation 13, verse 3. Jesus came back to life and was resurrected. Point number eight, the beast receives worship after his mortal wound is healed, Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4 and verse 8. Jesus received worship after his resurrection, Matthew 28 and verse 17. Point number nine, the beast was given universal authority over the earth after the healing of his mortal wound, Revelation 13, verse 7. Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, verse 18, after his resurrection. And finally, point number 10, The beast seeks to win over all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. Revelation 13, verse 7. Jesus seeks to win over all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. Revelation 14, verse 6. So can you see with me that these that this power seeks the prerogatives that belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? The enemy has in such a fine way brought about this counterfeit in order to deceive the entire world into worshipping him at the end of time. As I have already pointed out at the very outset, and I want to share with you once again, 
The final war at the end of time will be over worship. Over what? Over worship. Who will you give your allegiance to? The enemy is seeking to win your allegiance. The enemy is seeking to win your worship. And he seeks to do that through deception. And as we'll discover in an upcoming presentation, also through coercion. Whereas Jesus seeks to win your allegiance, Jesus seeks to win your worship through love, through kindness, by giving you the choice. At the end of time, the final war will be over worship. Make no mistake about that. The first war in heaven was over worship when Lucifer wanted to be like God, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. He wanted to be just like God. At the end of time, Lucifer, who is now Satan and the devil, will seek to be worshipped, will seek to receive that which belongs to God and God alone. The first murder was over worship when Cain killed his brother Abel. The final murder, according to the book of Revelation, will be over worship. When those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark will persecute the people of God who keep the commandments of Jesus and have the faith of Jesus. The ultimate war is over worship. It is over allegiance, over allegiance. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. Daniel writes, Then I wish to know the truth about the other horn, that is, this little horn, which spoke pompous words. Daniel wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know the truth, who this power was. He wanted to know who this power was. Do you want to know who this power is? Does God want us to know who this power is? Absolutely. God wants us to know the truth. He has made it crystal clear. He has revealed to us these 10 identification marks that make it absolutely crystal clear who this power is. And there are many others that we haven't had time to unpack in this presentation. God wants to know, God wants us to know who this power is. God wants us to know the truth. For Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. John chapter 8, verse 32. The beautiful truth that sets us free from the deceptions of the enemy. I want to know the truth. I'm sure you want to know the truth. I'm sure you out there, wherever you may be watching, want to know the truth. And ultimately, God wants us all to know the truth. So who is this power? Who is this kingdom? That revelation, that the book of Daniel, that the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 identifies as this antichrist power that seeks to take over the prerogatives that belong to God alone that is used by the enemy in order to receive worship at the end of time. This power is none other than the Church of Rome, the Roman Church State. That's who this power is describing. Now, before we continue on, I need to make it absolutely clear that God here is identifying a system. He's identifying a power. God is here not speaking of the individuals that are part and parcel of this system, that are part of the Roman church. Today, there are some one, 
1.2 billion Roman Catholics around the world. Many, many, millions upon millions, only God knows how many, who are sincere, who love God, who follow Him to the best of their ability, who, who know the Scriptures and love the Scriptures. They are part of this church. They are part of this system. God here is not speaking of the precious men and women that make up the Roman Catholic Church. God here is identifying a power, a system that takes away from the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. You see, God is not against people. God has never been against people. For Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that right? For God so loved the world the people of the world. But God exposes systems and powers that Satan uses. Don't miss that. That Satan uses in order to take on board the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. And that ultimate prerogative is worship. So God unveils, God reveals through the book of Revelation through the book of Daniel, through the rest of Scripture, God reveals Satan's plans in order to deceive you and me, to deceive the world into receiving worship. I'm an Australian. I'm proud to be an Australian. Blessed to be born in this country. But I'm not necessarily proud with what my ancestors did to those who lived in Australia, those who were here before we got here, and that is the Aboriginal people. If you're a German, you may be proud to be a German, but you're not proud what that man Hitler did. Today, there are Muslims all around the world who are proud to be Muslims. And they're beautiful people, but they do not associate with, with terrorists. They do not associate with ISIS and others who, in the name of God, in the name of their God, commit these horrendous acts. God loves people. And God is pointing out a system, a power that takes over the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. Now, it's interesting when we take a look at uh, the Roman church state flag, there you'll notice two keys, the keys of Peter. One is gold, one is silver. The gold one represents the spiritual power of the church and the silver one represents the political power of the church. So it's fascinating when you take a look at even the flag itself. It describes both the political and the spiritual power of the church of Rome. Let's take a look at these 10 identification marks and let's see if the church of Rome does fulfill each one. It comes up amongst the 10 kingdoms. Indeed, uh, the Vatican is located there in Rome, in Western Europe. It comes up after the Ten Kingdoms are established. Indeed, the Church of Rome received its power in, in 538 AD, its political uh, power from Justinian. It is a small Western European kingdom. Indeed, the Church of Rome, just over 100 acres. It uproots three kingdoms by the roots. That's exactly what took place. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals were uprooted in order to make room in order to make way for the Church of Rome, it had eyes like the eyes of a man. Indeed, it has a man at, at the forefront. It speaks pompous, blasphemous words against God. Indeed, the Church of Rome uh, claims that the Pope is God on earth and claims that it has the power to forgive sins. 
Number seven, it will be a greater, different kingdom from the other 10 kingdoms. And indeed, that is exactly what we find, that the Church of Rome is a political as well as a spiritual power. It intends or thinks to change God's times and laws. And that is exactly what we have. The Church of Rome in its catechism has uh, deleted the second commandment that deals with uh, image worship and bowing down uh, to images and making images and has divided up the, the 10th commandment into two. It shall persecute God's saints. And indeed, sadly, the Church of Rome, in the name of God, down through the centuries, has persecuted millions of God's people. It has religious and political authority for 1260 years. And that too is the case. For the Church of Rome ruled as a, as a religio-political power for 1260 years from 538 to 1798 AD. And we're going to take a look at that some more in the next presentation. Now, what I have shared with you, my friends, is not new to me. This was shared by the Waldenses, by Hugh Latimer, Ulrich Zwingli, Philip Melanchthon, John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Wesley, John Calvin, John Huss, and a host of others. What I've shared with you regarding this Antichrist power, this Antichrist kingdom, has been commonly established by Christians, by the reformers down through the centuries. Today, you won't hear this message for obvious reasons, but this is the truth. The Bible points to this power that we have identified as the Roman church state, as the end time Antichrist through whom the enemy will work in order to receive worship in order to deceive the whole world into worshipping him. Now, how does this prophecy end in Daniel chapter 7? Notice what we read in Daniel chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. That is this little horn power, this antichrist power to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So who is it that wins at the end of the day? Is it, is it Satan through the Antichrist? No. At the end of the day, the Bible is clear. God and his people will gain the victory. God and his people will have ultimate dominion. There will be no more deception. There will be no more persecution. God will rule and reign with his people forevermore. God will establish his final kingdom of love, justice and mercy. That is how this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 ends. In fact, that is how the prophecy in Revelation chapter 13 ends. It ends with God's people standing tall on Mount Zion, the place of victory, standing tall with Jesus Christ in their midst, for they have overcome through Jesus Christ. They have been faithful to Jesus Christ. They have worshipped Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And now they are saved forevermore. You and I have an opportunity, my friends. We have an opportunity to invite Jesus into our hearts and into our lives. I don't know about you, but I want to worship Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen. 
I want to worship Jesus Christ. I want to be faithful to Him. And I thank God through His Word, through the book of Revelation, that revealing book, the unveiling book, the book that tells us about Jesus and His plans for us and the enemy and His plans for us. I thank God that through the book of Revelation, we can know the truth, the truth that sets us free in Jesus, the truth that enables us to worship Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. We want to thank God for His beautiful truth. We want to thank God for what He has blessed us with. And we're going to close by praying and thanking God. So let's just pause and pray as we, as we thank God. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that through the books of Daniel and Revelation and, and many other passages in Scripture, Father, you have revealed to us the beautiful truth of how we can worship Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. You have also revealed to us how the enemy will seek, especially at the end of time, to take the worship that belongs to Jesus Christ alone and to receive that for himself. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask and pray that you will bless us as we continue to spend time in your word, as we continue to study your word. May your word be that which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Today and until Jesus comes is our prayer in his name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.